Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you as we get ready to dive into God's Word together. Today, we are at the final week of exploring the issue of discernment by looking at God's ancient wisdom for our modern world. And I especially want to thank Pastor Janet, as she shared with us last weekend, on what it means to discover that which is lovely to help us discern and move forward. So as we get ready this morning to jump into God's Word, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, this day may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to give you a description of something this morning. And as I do, I want to ask you in your own mind to start thinking about what might this be that I'm trying to describe here for you today? So, okay, first of all, it is a place where educated and non-educated, rich and poor, and people of vastly different cultures all have equal access to each other. It's a place where all ideas can be shared very, very easily. It's a place where one new idea can go viral in a very short amount of time. It is a place that can offer really, really good things and be a place of very great concern all at the same time. It's often a place where there's heated gossip and sometimes a lot of arguing. It is also a place where political theories, conspiracy theories abound. Some have even described it this way. They've said, it has produced every evil or a very evil and dangerous effect in all kinds of ways. It has produced scandalous reports devised and spread abroad, causing defamation. Now, as I give you that that list of descriptors, what is it that you think I'm describing? If you guess something in the realm of social media or the internet, you would be wrong. While there are obvious parallels in what I just described, what I was actually describing for you were a number of references used not in relation to social media or the internet, but actually to coffee houses in the 17th century. In fact, in 1675, it was King Charles II who wanted to shut down coffee shops because he believed they fostered too much defamation and harm through the conversations that happened in those places. He thought the coffee houses of that time caused too much division in the people of their time and culture. Now, I don't know about all of you. I know a lot of people who like coffee. I have tried to like coffee about a hundred different times and I just can't quite get there. Uh, At least not with straight black coffee. If you put enough caramel or cream or sugar in it, then yes, I like it. But then I'm not sure it's fair to call it coffee anymore. But like I said, lots of people I know love coffee and people years ago, even centuries ago, also loved coffee and maybe even like some of us depended on coffee. And so back in the 17th century, it became common for people to gather in coffee shops and coffee areas to start to share their ideas. And people from all walks of life could sit in close proximity with each other and literally rub elbows and share their ideas. And it was not expensive to do this. Literally for the price of a cup of coffee, you could sit down with somebody who had no education or somebody from a nearby university and have an intriguing conversation. And this is exactly what people did. 
And it was a great place to share knowledge, exchange knowledge, learn new things. All of those were good things. And a lot of times these coffee shops actually popped up near some of the elite universities of the time. And so literally somebody with no education could come in and sit down and have coffee and end up having a significant conversation with somebody who had incredible amounts of education. And so the wonderful side was that lots of ideas could easily be shared. But the downside was that this exchange of information could be tainted by gossip or self-interest or ulterior motives or deceit or disinformation. And so people then, just like they do now, had to learn and discern what was a good idea to share and carry on and what was not a good idea and not carry it on. Because lest we ever forget, not every idea that is shared is a good one. Not every idea is worth sharing. But how do we know which are the good ideas to keep moving forward with and which are the bad ideas that need to stop and cease? How then do we know in life which things to pursue and which things we should let go? That was a question that they faced centuries ago in those coffee shops. And it's really the key question we've been wrestling with on this series about exploring God's ancient wisdom for our modern world. Our goal has been increasingly to learn to discern to discover a next right step in our lives by being finely tuned to God's will and God's ways, especially in a world where so many different voices are competing and pulling for our attention. And throughout the series, we've been using these verses in Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine to help us in our discernment, which says this, Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. To, a, to be a discerning people, to grasp God's ancient wisdom for our modern world today, we have to be a people who pursue intentionally that which is true and honorable and just and pure, and lovely, and now today, that which is commendable. This phrase, whatever is commendable, it's an interesting phrase. What, what exactly does something that is commendable mean? Well, first of all, I want us to understand it is way more important than we might first think with first thought towards it. The specific word used in the Greek for this word commendable, it's the word euphemous and we derive our English word euphemism from it. So in English, we use a euphemism. That's whenever we use a nicer phrase instead of a more blunt or harsh phrase to convey the same meaning. So for example, somebody might say, I'm not bossy, <laughs> I'm outspoken. Or, or somebody might say, I need some peace and quiet instead of go away. Or somebody might say, you know, that's an interesting point of view. Instead of just, you're so weird or odd. So maybe the next time somebody says that's interesting to you, you can think about what they're really wondering when they say that to you. But this is what euphemisms do. At their core, they are designed to make something more positive rather than negative. And actually the intent of a euphemism or euphemis, it's good. 
It, it's the desire to not have damage, the desire to not have destruction. The most literal interpretation for the Greek word euphemist would be of good report or of good repute. In other words, goodness is the goal. And this word is only used two times in the entire New Testament, which means Paul, the writer here, is being very, very particular and specific and lifting up this word. And it seems what Paul is doing here, much like he did with the word lovely that Pastor Janet focused on last week, it seems that his desire is not so much to use churchy, religious, biblical language, so much as to use words that would have been familiar with those around him, uh, words that in the secular world they would have understood. And this word for commendable, euphemist, it's a word that the rest of the world would have understood. And so Paul is using it here. And the other place that he uses it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. There it says, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. Now notice the contrasts that are going on here. We have honor versus dishonor. We have ill repute versus good repute. That good repute is that word euphemist. What exactly is Paul contrasting euphemist or that which is commendable with? He's, co he's contrasting it with that of ill repute, which we might call slander, which in its most explicit form is a form of that which is blasphemous. So I think it becomes fair to say, based on what Paul's sharing with us, a contrast of euphemist is blasphemous. And I think a lot of us have at least an idea or a sense of what blasphemous is. Blasphemous is bad. It's a tearing down. It is not good, especially in relation to that which is good and holy and sacred. This is incredibly important when it comes to our words and our actions, because what Paul's starting to lay out for us here is the idea that is that in everything we do, especially with our words, we'll either build up or we'll tear down. And when somebody blasphemes, they denigrate. They, they inappropriately pull things down, things that deserve our honor and respect, especially things that are sacred in nature. When we pull those things down, when we denigrate them, it's a really big deal. It's not good. How significant is the power, the negative power of blasphemy in Scripture? Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16 says, One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. That's some strong language. Similarly, in Luke chapter 12, verse 10, we hear, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the only time in the New Testament we hear something going beyond forgiveness. It's related to blasphemy. It's that strong. Now, again, blasphemy normally relates to that which is sacred or holy in nature and denigrating it. But Jesus himself also makes it clear that when we do things which are not commendable, when we use language that is not commendable, it's not good. So we hear in Matthew chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, the good person brings good things out of the good treasure and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure, that which is within them. And then it says, I tell you on the day of judgment, you have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Here, there's a strong focus on the part of Jesus 
to say, what are we doing with our words? And we're gonna be held accountable for those words. Words that we use, are they being used to build up or to tear down? And Jesus says, you better pay attention to those things. So why is there such a strong reaction here? Why such strong language in scripture around against that which is blasphemous and even from Jesus here on the way that we use our words? Why is this so significant? Here's what I think is going on. I think that when we say something, either good or bad, something that is commendable or not, not only is it impossible to bring back those words from our mouth, but now we have forever altered the body of information that shapes our culture and our community. So once it's out there, not only can we not pull it back, it's gonna affect and influence everything around us. There's that kind of power in words. It's why we hear in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, I share all of this today because discerning people then are people who choose to pursue that which is commendable, that which is going to lead to good, that of good repute, that which is going to build up and not gossip or tear down. So to help all of us take a next right step, we all need to focus on and do that which is going to foster good, that which is going to foster a good repute. Now, that sounds easy enough. That might even seem bland on the surface. But in many ways today, with all the posting, all the tweeting, all the Snapchatting, all the sharing of information on an endless basis, we are encouraged more than ever to share that which is not true and to share that which actually tears down rather than builds up. We are encouraged more than ever to share that which is not commendable. And it makes our world a worse place. There was actually a study done a couple of years ago in 2018 by MIT, and it actually discovered this. They discovered that for people, for human beings, there's actually somewhat of an emotional reward for propelling and sharing false information rather than true information. Uh, the author named Peter Dziskis, he literally wrote uh, this study, this article called Twitter False News Travels Faster Than True Stories. They analyzed over 136,000 tweets from 2006 to 2017, and they found out that false news actually travels six times faster than true news. And then in groundbreaking fashion uh, in the article, they concluded that human beings were more likely to blame for the sharing of false information than others. And part of me read that and I was like, well, who else would be sharing such information? But what they discovered is that when they ran similar algorithms or used artificial intelligence, where the factor of emotion was taken out, in those instances with the artificial intelligence, the false news wasn't spread nearly so quickly. In fact, it wasn't spread more quickly. So why is it that human beings share false information up to six times more than true information? Researchers believe that there are at least two reasons. Number one, there's the novelty of being the first person to share news, whether it's true or not, without waiting for confirmation on seeing if it's true. So we love the novelty and we quickly wanna share something, whether it's true or not. And secondly, there tends to be a deep emotional reaction to many false stories. 
that cause us to have that emotional connection to the story and generate them and share them at a higher rate, even if it's not true. So because of this emotional connection, we wanna somehow be part of it. They actually discovered, they did an emotional profile in human beings between uh, looking at the profile between stories related to that which is true and that which is false, and they found a higher reaction, a higher emotional reaction when this, there was the sharing of something false. It's almost like we get literally a bit of a dopamine hit within us whenever we are sharing something that's on the edge or pushing the envelope or makes us look good or supports my theory or my preference even when it's not accurate or true. So one of the co-authors even said, people respond to false news more with surprise and disgust, which means there's a stronger emotional connection, which means we are more likely to share it. Because the stronger the emotional attachment, the more engagement we have, the more likely we are to pass it on. Now, in case you're wondering as I'm sharing these things and you think, well, for those people that use Twitter or Facebook, I understand that, or they're on social media a lot, but I'm not, so this doesn't pertain to me. Let me remind all of us, this issue of sharing disinformation, it's not new. It was around in those coffee shops 400 years ago as well. And it was around long before that. It's been around as long as there have been human beings. In fact, it's been the common pastime for humanity for a long time to share disinformation or to share stories that make us look good. And the more common term for this is something that we call gossip. Gossip contributes to that which tears down rather than that which is commendable. The words that we speak reflect what's going on in our heart and they reflect who we are. And we are told clearly in scripture, and I just shared some of it from Jesus a few moments ago, that we will all have to give account for our words, including our digital words and what we post online. When you think about it, that can be a rather terrifying thing. It brings a sense of gravitas to this whole issue of using our words in a wonderful way or using our words in a way that is commendable. Now, I lift all of this up because that's, that's a little bit heavy, I will confess, but I just want us to understand the magnitude of what's happening with the issue of living into that which is commendable. But I don't want us to focus on the negative and the blasphemy and the tearing down. I actually want to do the opposite. I want to lift up the power of that which is commendable. And I want us to understand how powerful living into euphemous, that which is commendable, really is. Because as destructive as blasphemy is, it's this euphemous, it's it's that doing which is commendable, which is the answer to blasphemy. So when we do that which is commendable, we take away the power and the sting and the negativity of the tearing down and of the gossip. And the more that we start to do and live into that which is commendable, the more we fine tune that in our, in our being through our words and through our actions, the more in tune we will be with what God would have of us in any situation. The more we hone it, the more we instinctually will do that which is commendable if we give attention to it and practice discipline and seek in all things to live and do that which is commendable in God's sight. And the more that we do this, the more, again, it just naturally becomes a part of who we are so that we'll do that which is good and true and just and pure and lovely and all the rest. 
Now, I share this with us, and I just want us to be clear, there is an element of discipline here. It takes effort and intentionality, but it's worth it. We are just coming off the Olympics now some weeks ago. I did not see one person who had won a gold medal that once they won the gold medal, they said, you know what, wasn't worth it. All that time, all that effort, all that discipline, psh, I wish I would never would have done it. Not one person said that. They were all happy to have given discipline to achieve the gold. You and I, as we seek to live a commendable life and live into that in a disciplined way, we are pursuing something so much more important than a piece of metal that will eventually tarnish or fade away. Part of this issue of discernment then, it's about choosing to make decisions and take action that will edify and not destroy. And every single word, every single action that we take contributes again to the world and culture around us to either elevate it and build it up or tear it down. Every single thing we do. I love how author Annie Dillard puts it. She says, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. How are you spending your life? Are you contributing to that which is commendable or that which is blasphemous or tearing down? Because if spending our days and focusing on that which is commendable involves building up and edifying, then that's what we want to invest our lives in. If we focus on that which is commendable, we'll live commendable lives. If we focus on that which is fearful or it's tearing down, so will it be reflected in our lives as a whole. So how do we do this? How do we discern our way forward in a commendable way? The first thing is, let's just stop and ask ourselves a question. The next time we go to do something, we just ask this question, is what I'm about to do going to build up or tear down? Is it gonna to contribute to that which is good or contribute to that which is negative? If the answer is yes, this contributes to that which is good, take a step in that direction. And if the answer is really no, have the courage to pause and not take a step in that direction. Let's be honest with ourselves. To discern and determine if something is good or commendable or not, it's not an easy task. I saw this quote a little while back and I loved it. It said, I probably should not say this, but... And it's attributed to everyone. Because don't we all do that on a regular basis? We know in the core of our being we shouldn't do this or th say that, but for whatever reason, that emotional attachment, that emotional high or connection or dopamine hit or whatever, we want to push the, ah, but I'm going to share it with you anyhow. Remember though, what is good is not always what's comfortable. How do we know if we should share a point of constructive criticism with a friend who may not want to hear it, but we know it's for their ultimate good? Is it really wise to post your perspective on a political and socially hot topic? Should we do that or not? When should we do that or not? And when do we know when to speak and when to remain quiet? Discernment is not about social comfort, it is about goodness. I wanna ask, ask us to ask ourselves, do we glorify things that really deserve shame? Or do we shame things that really deserve glory? Sometimes the good thing to do is to call it out and name something that is evil and not be quiet. And some of us need more courage to speak up. But some of us, 
the commendable thing to do is to not speak quite so much. And if you're not sure which category you fall into, if you speak up too much or too little, just ask your family and friends. They'll be able to tell you which category you fall into. At the same time, there's this temptation for us to do, indulge in ourselves. And it's too easy for us to deceive ourselves to say, well, the commendable thing is for me to just speak my mind. But I have met too many people who say things like, I just have to be me. Uh, this is my authentic self, which they then take as a means to give themselves permission to verbally throw up all over somebody else. Is that really the honorable thing to do? Is that the commendable thing to do? So when we're seeking to be commendable, we're seeking to get beyond the indulgence of focusing on ourselves. One of my favorite moments from the Olympics this year came in what you see pictured before you. Running the final curb of the men's 800 meters, American Isaiah Jewett was in prime position to finish in the top two in his heat. Unfortunately, unintentional disaster happened. Botswana's Nigel Amos inadvertently tripped Jewett from behind and the two middle distance runners collapsed on the track. Jewett said, I just felt like when I was starting to take off, somebody hit the back of my heel and it caused me to fall. It was devastating. I'm not gonna lie. But in a remarkable display of sportsmanship, Jewett got back up and in that moment helped Amos to his feet. Amos apologized for the mistake. Jewett put his arm around him and the two finished the race together. But the finishing of the race was secondary. What mattered is that they finished the race together and showed everyone this tremendous witness around the world of sportsmanship and forgiveness. That story was carried around the world by USA Today. I can't even imagine the discipline it took for Isaiah Jewett to do this. If ever there was a time for self-indulgence, if ever there was a time to lash out, if ever there was a time that something wasn't fair because it wasn't his fault, if ever there was a time to choose somebody else out, this was it. But in that moment when he fell and it wasn't even his fault, he had a choice to make. Would he tear down further? Or would he choose to build up and almost instinctually, because this all happened so fast, Jewett got up and instead of tearing down, went to this other gentleman, put his arm around him and offered a different display to the world, one of goodness, one that was commendable. I know for me, I would have been so angry. And in the heat of the moment, I don't even know what I would have done. But when Jewett finished, his next right step was to do that, which is commendable. Now, as intense as it would have been for Jewett in these moments, as high as these stakes were, those stakes pale in comparison to the one who chose to do that which was commendable against all odds when the stakes were the absolute highest. And we hear this in 1 Peter chapter 2, for it is a credit to you if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you're beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to you, this has been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. 
and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When Jesus had the ultimate choice on what to do next, he chose to do that which was commendable. He went to the cross for us, even though he had done nothing wrong, even though it was not his mistakes that put him on the cross. What will you and I do? If we ever think this is not a big deal, we need to realize again, this is how we put evil at bay in our world. By Jesus doing the commendable thing, he defeated death. Every single time you and I make a commendable choice, we hold evil at arm's length. Evil is defeated when we discern our way forward by doing that which is commendable. Evil begins to lose its grip with every commendable choice we make. And church, we have that opportunity today to do that which is commendable, to avoid the blasphemous, to avoid desecrating the image of God in ourselves or in others. Every day we have the opportunity to shape the world around us. How we respond to what we're going to put on Facebook or on social media, how we choose to invest our time, how we prioritize others, how we value or not value people who think differently than we do, or how we utilize our resources. In all of these ways, we influence the world around us. And what will we do in each of those situations, the commendable thing or the teardown thing? And so many choices we make, how do we know best what to do? By doing the commendable thing, by doing the thing that's gonna make this world better by doing the things that are gonna to lead to healing and joy and gratitude. Do the things that defeat blasphemy. Do the things that build up and do not tear down. Do the things that will stop evil in its tracks. Now apply that thinking, apply this commendable mindset. The next time that you're thinking through your politics, the next time you go to make that Facebook post, the next time you have a job search, the next time you're going on your next date, how you're going to spend your money, what you're going to do in private, apply the commendable mindset in all of those places and see what God does. See what God intends. And God will make it clear to you and at the same time use you in furthering God's goodness in our world. This in part is why we're doing our next sermon series starting next week. It's this fall kickoff series we've been talking about entitled In the Beginning because from the very beginning we see God's goodness and if we can understand what God intended from the beginning, it's gonna help guide our lives here and now. And today I wanna to ask you specifically to start thinking and praying about how you can be all in for this fall kickoff series and everything that we're gonna do over the six weeks of the series together. To pursue that which is good and to pursue that which is commendable for the glory of God. I don't know what choices you're facing right now. I don't know what big or small decisions you have to make. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you where to turn for answers for discernment on a next right step. Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine, finally beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, 
if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Let us be a discerning church. Amen.